My name is Shira Talishkin. I'm a first year MTS here at Harvard Divinity School. I study monasticism and the history of sacrifice as a virtue, um, especially in modern American culture. Uh, and I am just so happy to be sharing this space here with all of you. I've been hearing amazing stories about HDS from so many of the alum. Um, and I'm really incredibly excited to be introducing our keynote speaker today. Um, Jill Abrams is a deeply accomplished and respected leader in the field of journalism. She's been one of the leading voices in getting established institutions to really embrace the opportunities of change that are happening in the field. I think at a time when there's a lot of uncertainty, when there's a lot of fear, um, there's a lot of pessimism, I would even say. Um, I've, I've worked as a journalist um, and me and my friends these are just conversations that I'm sure we're all sort of having as we see just how much the field of journalism has changed. And it's been really amazing to have voices like Ms. Abrams who are just saying like things are changing and there's real opportunity there to go forward with them. Um, after a long and distinguished career at the New York Times, which culminated with her service as executive editor, she's recently joined The Guardian as a regular columnist. She's working now on a new book just about um, media and the future of journalism and where to get that going, which I think is some of what she'll be talking with us here today. Um, she found her love of journalism and the power of ideas to change the world while an undergraduate here at Harvard College. And last year she came back to the college where she now teaches a seminar on journalism for 12 to 14 very lucky students um, each semester. Um, it's my privilege and honor to introduce her today and I hope you will all enjoy her talk. Save. Thanks so much for such a nice introduction. And when you said um, I had found my love here at Harvard as an undergraduate, I thought she meant my husband, who <laughs> I actually did meet sophomore year uh, at Harvard in a house play, a Noel Coward play, but that isn't what you meant. Uh, um, it, it's great to be uh, with you all this afternoon and a uh, great honor to be your last speaker. Uh, EJ you know, has been a friend of mine for decades. We both covered politics almost longer than any still working <laughs> journalists. Uh, and you know, he, 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 uh, his new book is just really worth, uh, worth reading. It's, it's fantastic. So when I was thinking about uh, the many things I could talk to you about today, I decided that I wanted to mix a little inspiration with the political campaign. And you know, I, it took a lot of thinking and a lot of juggling <laughs> to make that work. And uh, you're, you all are gonna have to be the judge of uh, whether I've somehow glued those things uh, together. Um, and I just want to start by saying I'm going to talk short and leave like a lot of questions because I heard some of your great questions uh, to EJ. I'm far less of a specialist on the nexus of religion and politics, but 
am happy to talk about anything that you're interested in uh, today. So, you know, Robert Frost described life as knitting to go on with. And my mother was a great knitter, and when I was little, I loved just watching her make sweaters and baby blankets. And sometimes she would leave her work unfinished, only to pick, pick up what she was working on again. And that's really Frost's point. His point is life is always unfinished business. And the knitting I've just picked up again is teaching here at Harvard. I teach creative, a creative writing course about journalism in the English department. And the students are such talented writers. It's really a joy and a privilege to help them burnish their writing and learn basic reporting skills. Uh, it gives me immense pleasure to think that I am helping to train the next generation of EJs and Jills. Uh, and you know, even though journalism is in a period of bumpy transition, uh, I'm always interested that so many students want to go into journalism. Not just the students have written for the Harvard Crimson, but lots of them. And my course is always oversubscribed. So interest in, in the profession is, is, is running very high these days. Uh, yeah, the First Amendment is first for a reason. The founders of this country believed an unfettered press was critical to hold power accountable to the people. Journalists are actually the only professionals that have constitutional protection. Oops. One sec, sorry. And I did fall in love, both with my husband and journalism, as an undergraduate here. And I studied for exams my sophomore year, listening to the Watergate hearings on a little transistor radio. And I watched two reporters, uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, and their wonderful publisher, Catherine Graham, use the Washington Post as an instrument to hold the highest power accountable the president. And I've worked for two of the greatest newspapers on earth, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, as an investigative reporter and an editor. Because of Watergate, I've always followed the money. I've dug into the nexus of money and politics uh, for years and years. Uh, and every successive election cycle, we've all seen the amount of money involved in our politics explode to higher levels just when you think it couldn't get any, any worse or big money wouldn't, couldn't possibly have a bigger role than it does now. It does, and, and this election is, is no exception. Uh, you know, th this year has been particularly interesting and different in terms of money because the billionaire candidate in the race, Donald Trump, has actually uh, mainly self-funded his campaign and spent very little because 
As the New York Times reported, he has received over $1.8 billion in free media, just in the kind of excessive news coverage that EJ was just talking to you about. Uh, so, you know, he, he, he doesn't have to buy TV spots uh, because the eyes of the country are always on him. Uh, and with Bernie Sanders, who's the grassroots candidate, um, he's raising money like Topsy, uh, but mainly from small donors. He actually outraised Hillary Clinton in March, uh, he took in $44 million uh, out of a total haul since last January of about $183 million. And as he is fond of pointing out, the average contribution to Sanders is $27. So um, Obama did very well using the internet to raise grassroots money, but Sanders is taking it to an even higher art. Uh, and e even though the, the Clinton money machine is one of the best oil that politics has ever seen, you know, Ted Cruz is definitely worth keeping an eye on. Some of, I don't know if many of you are familiar with the expression dark money. Uh, New, New York writer named Jane Mayer, who's a very close friend of mine, has just come out with a book that's at the top of the bestseller list called Dark Money, and it traces, um, it, it's, it really harks back to, to Watergate. Uh, we're back post the, the Citizens United decision in the Supreme Court, we're very much back to a, a world of secret money that isn't disclosed. Uh, big, big money, and we don't know the sources of it. Uh, many rich billionaires, uh, far richer than Donald Trump is, are, are pouring money uh, into a variety of political committees that have you know, very bland titles like Citizens uh, for Good Government or Citizens for a Sound Economy, which is one that has been affiliated with the Koch brothers. Uh, but that, that troubles me because of all the reforms after Watergate, disclosure of campaign contributions was the bedrock reform that, that happened. And, and now even that is, is gone. Uh, in fact, uh, while I was listening uh, as a student here to the Watergate hearings, uh, President Nixon's secretary, do you remember Rosemary Woods, whose foot slept, slipped on the recording device that was in the White House? Well, Nixon actually kept a big safe in the White House. And many businessmen, uh, you know, from the oil companies, from the big agricultural companies, would just bring like bags of cold cash uh, into the White House, and Rosemary Woods would store it uh, in the safe. And when one of the big Watergate trials happened, uh, um, a, a wonderful document had to be produced by the White House, and it was called Rosemary's Baby. Uh, 
And what it was was a secret list of where the cash came from. But, you know, that's kind of the, the, the although we don't have bags of cash uh, being stowed in a safe, uh, that, that, that kind of secret system is, is back. Uh, and I guess this, this election cycle, I, I have you know, been one of the girls on the bus uh, going back to 1976, which was my senior year here. And you know, it was really back then an all-male cast of, of characters covering the presidential election. And you know, the bus is a lot more diverse now. There are many more women, especially young women, and I celebrate that trend. But in general, uh, though the, the internet has democratized information in many healthy ways, in terms of political journalism, the 24-7 news cycle and the thirst of um, the public to know information as it's happening has meant that the kind of reporting that I always did, investigative reporting, is more difficult to do. It takes a lot of time, and editors now want little, what I call little scooplets uh, every hour. And the problem with scooplets is that they create, you know, what's called buzz of the moment, but they're pretty evanescent. Uh, you don't really remember what they were, you know, a day or so later. And so the kind of deep reporting, uh, the great analytic pieces or the reporters that really, you know, went out, knocked on doors, really understood what the concerns of real people were, there's just not time anymore to, 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 to do that. And I think that that is one of the explanations for why the press was relatively late to the story of Donald Trump's rise because most of the reporters who are sitting in front of these things in New York or Washington or Los Angeles don't know many Trump voters and you know weren't weren't hearing them and you know in in the beginning the Huffington Post had decided they didn't want to cover Donald Trump uh, in their political section and only put stories about him in the entertainment section. And you know, some of you may agree with that categorization, but, but, but the media was late to Trump and then having been late, you heard what, what EJ said, it's like no one can get enough. Uh, and the reason for that is sort of crass. It isn't really that the many outrageous things that Trump says are so newsworthy that every single one of them has to lead the news. But he's a ratings, uh, you know, magnet. And uh, he's making a lot of money for the networks and the cable channels. And Les Moonves, who is head of CBS, actually in a moment of candor admitted that, that like Trump has been a gold mine for CBS. So, you know, that, that, that is, is very much part of uh, why you're seeing so much of him. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I have mixed 
feelings about at least how the, the political press is doing so far. Uh, I like, you know, I really believe that journalism is a public service. When I went into journalism, you know, I really, although Woodward and Bernstein uh, inspired me, I wasn't looking, you know, to have scalps uh, on the wall. I, I thought journalism was really a calling and a way to, to serve the public. And uh, I very much want to see it continue to do so in this somewhat tougher environment uh, where news organizations are sometimes more attracted by things that will get a lot of clicks, uh, like the, the cliche is cats on skateboards, but it's kind of true. Uh, and, you know, I think at this point, there's a little bit of soul searching going on. Uh, there have been a no number of columns, including a very good one by Nick Kristoff in The Times, sort of looking inward and saying, you know, did, did the press help make Donald Trump what he is today? And I don't think the press can be blamed for Trump's rise, but I think they have a hand in responsibility for his his rise. Uh, and I just, you know, I'd like to to close going going back um, to the idea of 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 didding. Uh, I um, I had a wonderful career uh, at both the Journal and the New York Times. Uh, I was the first woman to be the Washington bureau chief, and one of the bosses that I had when I was working as a stringer for Time magazine uh, in Boston while I was at Harvard was miraculously, the bureau chief was a woman back then. And you know, for the rest of my career, I never worked for another woman. And so when I got the job of Washington bureau chief, uh, her name was Sandy Burton. Sandy sent me a telegram. She was working in China then, and she said she could hear the glass shattering all the way to Hong Kong, uh, which was very nice. And you know, the, I, I became the first uh, woman managing editor at the Times and supervised all the election coverage and investigative reporting. And then I was the first woman to be executive editor, the top job, which I did happily for, for three years. And then, you know, in um, about two years ago exactly, I was fired from my job, uh, which, you know, what was a tough thing. Uh, you know, it, it was, I, I didn't know exactly um, what would, would uh, come next in, in my life. And the week after, uh, I was fired. I actually I had agreed to give a commencement speech speech at Wake Forest, and you know I wasn't going to pull uh, out of that. And I looked at the students and I said, "Just like you, I'm kind of scared. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing." But uh, you know, there was a fair amount of of knitting that I was able to pick up. 
uh, you know, one is writing and reporting myself, not for the Times, unfortunately, but for a great publication, The Guardian. Um, writing a book and uh, and and teaching here, uh, which is really grat so gratifying because it, it's something every day to walk by. My, my class was the first class of women to be allowed to live in Harvard Yard. And I, you know, I walk past Grace East every day and that's where I lived uh, freshman year, you know, as one of the pioneers uh, in the yard. And, you know, uh, uh, meeting my husband happened here. You know, college is a very eventful uh, time of life as I'm being reminded during office hours when my students come talk to me about everything, which, which I love. Uh, and so, you know, I'll close on just one more um, piece of, of, of knitting that uh, is actually brand new to me, and that's I'm a new grandmother. And, you know, since last year, my uh, daughter and her husband are both surgeons at MGH. And their residents, and you know, both of them sometimes work 24-hour um, shifts. It's a really brutal uh, kind of life, but they both love it. And just like I said, I saw journalism as a form of public service. They love medicine for the same reasons. But they have an adorable six-month-old daughter, and so. Um, I'm grand-nanny, uh, too. Uh, and, you know, that knitting in some ways feels familiar and wonderful, but sometimes I make a terrible, terrible mess out of it. Uh, so on, on that note, I would just, I'd love, you know, to, to answer your questions uh, about the campaign, about really any current events. At the Times, I supervised uh, every area of coverage, including religion. Uh, the Times is religion uh, writer Mark Oppenheimer is someone who I got to know teaching writing at Yale. And like he is a gift to the times who came through me. Uh, I'm sorry that religion coverage has been cut back at the New York Times and it's literally non-existent at some other news organizations, which I think, you know, it is a mistake if you want to un really understand the, the world. Uh, I remember uh, do, do any of you remember a, a byline in the New York Times, R.W. Apple, Johnny Apple, who used to, you know, write very authoritatively about Washington, but um, he wrote the, a beautiful lead, I thought, to a story that, that he was writing, and it, you know, called up, it was a sunny Sunday, and he said, People were out, you know, at football games and at go, or going to the movies or this and that. And uh, a friend of mine called me up and said, you know, it, it was pretty, it, those are pretty words, but get real. Most people in the country are at church on Sunday. So that's just an indication of, 
how out of touch uh, even great journalists can be. So please, please, uh, I know some of you are probably tired after such a packed day, but uh, fire away. Yours, I think, was first. Uh, uh, Ms. Abramson, thank you very much. Um, my name's John Crystal. I, I actually work for the University in External Relations and, and Development. I work with the Divinity School. Um, I'm curious whether or not you see any conceivable path forward to uh, reform on on uh, the, the funding of, of national elections and how they're, how they're financed. Do you, see any, do you see the possibility of anything along the lines that, say, uh, Lawrence Lessig you know, proposes, right. whether it's via a constitutional convention or, or otherwise? Thank you. Right. I mean, I was in Washington during the Clinton administration when the McCain-Feingold bill was passed, which was you know, very stiff campaign finance reform. It was a good bill, but most of its provisions were overturned by a more conservative Supreme Court. And then came Citizens United, uh, which, you know, at least if the Supreme Court remains, you know, 5-4 with, you know, a clear conservative majority, you know, I don't think even if both houses of Congress went Democratic and whoever was president really pushed uh, new campaign finance reform legislation, I don't think that it would be ruled constitutional. And so it will take two profound changes. I don't mean to sound so partisan here, but it would, I think, take electing a Democratic president having both houses of Congress controlled by Democrats and having that Democratic president succeed in nominating a new justice. And under those circumstances, I could see it. But, you know, that's a perfect storm, and you don't see those often. Um, thank you for your remarks. Um, so we all know the New York Times, and for me personally, I used to follow journalists like Rick Smith and Fox Butterfield and your colleagues, John Darton, and I followed your career um, and admired your career because you were a woman who, as you said, rose to uh, exceptional places within the newspaper business. Um, I'm always amazed at is it true in your opinion that women still are struggling? And I mean, words like mercurial, I think if somebody did a study, that word seems to be so much Merc more- Mercurial? mercurial? Right. So applied much more, to women? Mm-hmm. And I just, I mean, have we gotten anywhere yet? Or, and I know it's a, maybe a delicate question, but no, I'm just- No, it's not at all. I, I've been asked that in, in other settings. And, you know, I think, have we made improvement at all? The answer is a resounding yes. Uh, because as I said, I, you know, in my career, especially when I was just coming up, you know, there were no, you know, women who were 
supervising editors at all, and now there are. Uh, there are very few women in journalism at that top level. Uh, and in terms of Mercurial, and there, I think there is still a clear double standard that is applied to women and men. And there are many <coughs> business studies of that, including research that Sheryl Sandberg backed uh, when she was doing her book, Lean In. And it's just a plain fact that you know, mercurial or qualities that show ambition, having ambition, is seen as a negative in women, and it's seen as leaderly in men uh, by huge, uh, there's a huge gap in that. And the other statistic that, that, that I've seen on another, I, I think it was a Harvard Business School study, that the correlation between likability um, and unlikability. Unlike, unlikability becomes like a coat a woman is wearing the higher she goes. And that is just not true for men. So, you know, until those sort of preconceptions are somehow erased, which will only happen when there are a lot more women uh, in top roles at Fortune 500 companies or at hospitals, uh, like the one where my, my daughter works. Uh, I, 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 I worry, and you know, it makes me plain angry um, now to see that my daughter is struggling, you know, it doesn't surprise me, but to see her struggling with the same things I struggled with uh, at the beginning of my career, including no government solution for how to get quality childcare. And I'm talking not for my daughter or for me, but for, you know, working single mothers, you know, who are struggling far more than, than anyone in my family ever did. But, you know, we, we are, uh, you know, the failure of, of government to provide any solutions to these issues, especially compared, you know, to European countries and even some Asian countries is just to me, shocking and does make me angry. And it, it makes me very determined to make sure that when little Eloise, my new granddaughter, uh, gets out there, um, she, she should not have to worry about shattering glass anymore. No, I insist that a woman ask a question after that. I just, I'm sorry. Um, thank you so much for being here with us today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I actually have three questions. Apologies to the ladies I'll in the room. I'll try to hold three in But you in can my take head. your pick on them. So you do not, you're under no obligation to, to answer them. 
but they are, number one, you referred to journalism as a calling for you, and we're at the Divinity School, and that's language that we here in this room are very comfortable and familiar with and hear a lot. And I'm wondering, at the college and in, in your industry now, do you hear people still talking about journalism as a calling, considering the diversity and what it means to be a journalist today, and how people are sort of conceiving of a calling in the students that you have in your classroom? That's number one. Number two, you talked a lot about um, money as power in politics today, and I think everyone would agree overwhelmingly correct on that, but I'm wondering what other types of power you see being exercised or you would like to see exercised moving forward in political cycles, if not this year. By political leaders. Or by people, uh, yeah, by political leaders, but not just those running, also those in mm -hmm. communities that we all are part of. So would be question two, and the, the last one is, is on the question of research, which you alluded to a little bit. Um, think we're at one of the best research institutions in the world, so what type of research would you like to see coming out of Harvard Divinity School or Harvard at large um, that would help inform the young journalists that you're talking to or all of us as scholars mm -hmm. and leaders moving forward. Okay, can I take the last one first? You know, they always, one of the tips um, about speaking is always answer the question you wish had been asked. <laughs> uh, but I think I got all three. Uh, what, the, what research I would like to see, be, partly because so many outright falsehoods have been uttered during this election cycle about the state of the country. Uh, you know, the, the whole argument that, I mean, our country, Lord knows, has, you know, many, many unresolved problems. But, you know, things all considered are, are pretty good right now. And, you know, I would love to see a new set of great, empirical research about the health of our institutions. Uh, you know, I think we have the research on the economy. I just don't think it's been put together in a way that somehow has gotten through to great masses of people. So I'd like to see research somehow synthesized in a way that could be useful to voters. Uh, but this, the country is going down the tubes, belief is, I think, wrong-headed and, you know, creates this atmosphere of, of, of fear all the time and of distrust of one another. Uh, and, you know, I, I've been able to, in some of my columns, like point, you know, correct and point out some of it. But, you know, if I just had a good stack, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to be able to refute some of that myself. And I think if every journalist had that, it would be great. Uh, because it's almost gotten to the point where the belief is so strong that you know, the United States is losing, uh, that a candidate who actually knows that isn't true is afraid to say it. So there's sort of an echo chamber created. No one wants to say the truth because a false belief is so ingrained. So that's a kind of very general answer 
to that question. A, a calling still, I think journalism, not by everyone, but is seen as a calling, and especially foreign correspondence, international reporting. I mean, I lived through, as executive editor at the Times, uh, the death of Anthony Shadid, who was a great Middle East correspondent who did the most empathetic kind of stories where, you know, he was fluent in Arabic, he was of Lebanese extraction. He could basically interview anyone, and he did, uh, and had just a wonderful, wonderful soul and a beautiful way of writing. But he um, went into Syria and died coming out of Syria because he was allergic to horses, and the um, people who were trying to get Anthony and a Times photographer over the border had to do so with horses, and Anthony was walking right behind them, and he had a fatal asthma attack. Uh, so, you know, I, the, the, the risks that, you know, reporters, and some of them are, are really young, take to go into conflict zones is incredible uh, and frankly because you know the 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 committee um, to protect journalists keeps a, a running toll of how many journalists have been killed and it's just a staggering increase since 9-11 and the fact that so many young people that's their dream is to go um, go abroad and see what it's like to report in war zones and conflict zones, that that has to be a calling. And, you know, the idea that there are reckless cowboys, you know, who are, are doing this, maybe one in a million, but, but I, I, do, I do think it is still a, a calling. And certainly at the times I was, you know, reminded of that uh, regularly. Um, and your question about power is difficult. Can you say it again? It's what was what kind of power would I like to see exercised? Yeah, more? by either political leaders not running for office or by those of us who are leaders in communities. We know that we have power to draw from, but we're feeling sort of overwhelmed by the amount of money that's in politics these days. So what types of power have you seen exercised well when it comes to an election cycle in the past number of cycles that we've had, or what type of power would you like to see exercised moving forward that might offset some of the money and power that we see today? Well, you know, I think the, 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 the most troubling problem we have is this pervasive gridlock in Washington where, you know, the country is so polarized and the political leaders are so polarized that they can't agree on, on anything. And, you know, there are so few political leaders left in Washington who are, you know, the old school, you know, moderation and we can disagree during the day but we get together at night. That's all gone. Uh, and I would like to see some kind of civility and comedy restored to, to the Congress, uh, first and foremost. But, 
you know, you see, you know, what's going on in the presidential campaign. At least I wonder who in their right mind would want to run for office. So, you know, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I believe that, you know, the, the constitution we have and the system of government we have is the best in the world. Uh, but, you know, having said that, uh, we're just at a particularly sad point. And it's not like this has never happened before in our history. I mean, history is a good guide. Uh, if any of you read um, Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, before Johnson got to the Senate in the 1940s, I mean, it was the most hopeless do-nothing, terrible Senate in history and had been for something like 60 years. But, you know, a good leader like Johnson got to Washington, was able to, to change things. And so if it happened then, it can happen again. I wonder what you think maybe the possibility for uh, doing something more about childcare and family leave, given the polarization of people thinking government should do nothing and get out of our lives, and others who think that it might. Do you see it happening at the state level, or do you see any any? No, I'm just going to be honest. I think if Hillary Clinton gets elected, she is going to do something on this. I mean, children's rights have, has been, you know, one of her lifelong pursuits and uh, helping women is, you know, what she's about. So, you know, I'm not saying she by herself can get legislation through, but I think it will be a priority for her. And I think, you know, bi businesses, including hospitals, you know, can, they, you know, they gain in all kinds of ways from having more women in the workforce. Uh, unfortunately, women are still paid 76 cents for every dollar that goes to a man, but, uh, you know, women turn out to be, you know, great workers and really savvy business people. And if you want to retain that workforce that you've spent so much money training, you've got to begin offering, you know, good childcare options for your workforce. Thank you. I must admit, as a guilty consumer of cats on skateboards, I'm interested in the in the business of, of journalism and profession as well. The, the, the huge money influence in politics can also be seen in journalism. And I'm wondering if you can speak from your experience on some of the opportunities in that you see in the business supporting real uh, in-depth investigative journalism, uh, thinking of ownership transitions in the Financial Times recently, in the Washington Post as well, 
what could that space look like that would really support what we would like to see as the best of journalism? You know, there are some nonprofits, like a, a group called ProPublica, which is a newsroom only of investigative reporters. They've won a Pulitzer Prize. They do fabulous work, some of which, you know, they basically have given to news organizations that can't afford investigative reporting anymore. There's a, another group that Bill Keller, who was executive editor of the Times when I was managing editor, um, uh, founded called the Marshall Project, and they focus on investigative journalism about the criminal justice system. And, you know, at the state level, there are some really good nonprofits as well in in Minneapolis where the the newspaper went into decline. There's something called the Min Post, which has great political reporting and other things. There's the Texas Tribune. That's all, these are all digital uh, news organizations, but you know they're they're few and far between. Uh, but at least the recognition that investigative reporting is somewhat of an endangered species and the rise of some of these groups is, I think, a hopeful sign. Well, you know, I, I'll try to answer that question, but as an editor, I have always believed the best stories bubble up from reporters who are covering uh, the subjects. And uh, Lori Goodstein is the main uh, religion reporter at the time. She is fantastic. Uh, and you know, I, I just wish she wrote more frequently. Uh, you know, I'd be interested in whether you see any obvious gaps, uh, stories that are, are going unwritten, because, you know, none, like, come to mind. I wish, you know, a, a, a story that, you know, was a, a, a disturbing story about religion, but the most read magazine piece of the year was in the Atlantic magazine and it was called What ISIS Believes. And it actually walked you through their, you know, extreme uh, Wahhabi related uh, beliefs about religion and, you know, who will survive and who won't. And it was so in depth and told so authoritatively that, you know, I wondered, like, why haven't I seen something like this in the Times? Uh, so that, that would be one. Uh, who could say the gaps? Gaps? 
Um, is, is there a future for print journalism and in particular for daily print newspapers? Uh, there has to be a future for daily print newspapers because, you know, at the Times and the Washington Post, uh, I think 60, about 65% or more of the revenue that, that each company makes. Of course, the Post now has, uh, you know, Jeff, Jeff Bezos and, and his fortune backing it. But, you know, the print newspaper is still the biggest generator of money to support news gatherings. So, you know, it's, it's vital that, that print remain uh, for a good while longer. Uh, in order for, you know, a newsroom the size of the Times, which is about more than 1,200 journalists, uh, to sustain that, you would need, and to sustain it with only digital, uh, you know, resources, you would need far higher digital ad revenues and the Times Pretty, pretty much alone in journalism has, you know, got, has a very successful digital subscription program. But the lines between print ads and circulation and digital, you know, they have to meet for the newsroom uh, to be sustained at the level it is now. And, you know, I can't tell you what year that will happen. So that's why the transition to, to digital has been so difficult. Well, I think one more. Um, no more? Okay, thanks a lot. It's been great being with you.